0: But I'm here to tell you this today. If you can treat arachnoiditis, you're ready to be a pain specialist. Okay? So to me, that's the bottom line. Can you treat this problem or can't you? And I do know that you're the hardcore medical corps. And so, welcome. Welcome. You'll enjoy what, what you've seen. Now, how it came about that I'm, we're doing this, there's several factors, and I know some of you have heard of me talk about the advances in MRI technology, the advances in neuroinflammatory serum markers. A lot of those things had a lot to do with it, but the real realization out of all of this is that arachnoiditis, which is, in simple terms, an inflammation of the lining of the spinal canal or of the meninges around the brain, and that is... The increase in this is real, but more than that, we've been seeing these cases for years and didn't know what it was. We didn't have a way to diagnose it. Today, it's still considered a rare disease. However, by my simple calculations, we probably have a million to two million people with this condition. There is no pain practice, or general practice, probably in the country, that does not have cases in it. Because, I will tell you this right out front, all these people who we are calling fail Back Surgery Syndrome probably have this condition, okay? That's probably what the underlying cause is. And so, you start looking at the numbers, this is a huge problem, and it's here to stay. Disclosures, most of you have seen that. Uh, Objectives, major causes of arachnoiditis, the complications. Also, which back pain patients have arachnoiditis. Certainly, every practitioner in the country, pain specialist or not, should know how to talk to a back pain patient and know whether they have a probability of having neuroinflammation of the cauda equina or of the arachnoid layer. That should be basic, Workup in physical diagnosis 101 and lastly the four components of treatment These are the diagnoses that patients are currently carrying around the country and Certainly if you look at my own writings, I've been using these same same names It's just that today We know that those are nondescript terms that we've been using because we really didn't know Why that surgery didn't work? Why is this person not making it? We just didn't know. Well, we now have the ability to find out why they're not making it. Another thing you should know, we have ICD-10 numbers for these conditions. This is not exactly a mystery. You would think, in talking to a lot of people, that no one knows anything about this. The fact be known is, Arachnoiditis has been well described for some 30 or 40 years. There's some excellent textbooks even written about it. It's just that it never had any way to be diagnosed, so those nice textbooks kind of got left in the shuffle. But the people who wrote ICD-9 in 1976 and the modern ICD-10s have the numbers. Now, what you see here is not only adhesive arachnoiditis, but you see chronic cauto syndrome. Now, a lot of you are familiar with acute cauda equina syndrome, which is usually due to trauma or an acute slipped disc in which there's paralysis of the lower extremities, and that's a neurosurgical emergency. But you, there are a lot of people who believe in a chronic cauda equina syndrome. And indeed, there's an ICG-10 number for it. I will use that myself occasionally. And now, Tarlov says, how many of you have heard of Tarlov cyst? Most of you. Well that's great. A Tarloff cyst is really an outpouching or a cyst of the nerve roots of the cauda equina. Now, there's a little debate among those of us who are really into this as to whether the cysts come before the arachnoiditis or whether the arachnoiditis causes the cysts, but they're fundamentally the same illness, same disease. So Tarloff cysts and arachnoiditis or kissing cousins one way or another. Characteristics of the neuroinflammatory diseases of the lower spine. And here is one of my major messages today in diagnosis. And that is, you can take a lower back pain patient and ask him two questions and pretty well know what you're dealing with. And one is, is the pain constant? We talked about that earlier. The carotid equina has microglial cells. It has constant pain. The pain is embedded in the memory of those nerve roots. And so the pain is constant. What you're probably less familiar with, as was I until recent months, was the high connection between bladder dysfunction and arachnoiditis. Okay? Now, there are, some of you heard earlier today, and you'll see more pictures of it, The cauda equina has about two dozen nerve roots hanging down below L1. What's interesting, there are 11 connections between those two dozen nerve roots and the bladder. It's amazing how many connections there are. Now, patients don't talk about it, I found out, unless you ask them, because bladder dysfunction takes a lot of different patterns, and you need to understand how to ask the questions. Bladder dysfunction in these patients may be quite simple. It may be simple urgency. They can't make it to the bathroom. It may mean they dribble, they wet the bed, they can't stop their stream, they can't start it. In severe cases, they really have a neurogenic bladder and many of these patients actually practice self-catheterizations. It's been embarrassing to me to find long-term patients that I didn't even know what they had were self-catheterizing themselves several times a day, and I didn't know about it until I learned to ask about it. So what you do on these patients, when you get a lower back pain patient that's a pretty severe case, you start asking about how's your urine going, okay? And the questions are simple. And once you ask them, they're more than happy to talk about it, but they probably won't volunteer it. Nevertheless, a person with constant low back pain and the inability to start their stream or stop it or have some bladder dysfunction, you've got a case on your hands. You can kind of bank on that. Now, there are some other characteristics that you should know about in these cases. And incidentally, I'm going to be talking mostly about the lumbar spine. I don't have enough time to get into the neck, but the cervical neck is the other place you have arachnoiditis. And it's diagnosable. You can see the evidence of it on the MRIs, and I don't have time to get into it, but the neck is the other place you see it. So this lecture primarily focuses on the lumbar spine, but keep in mind that those neck cases that are in there taking your fentanyl and your morphine and can't function and have a miserable life, they've also probably got arachnoiditis of the cervical neck. Okay, now, patients that demand a lot of medication, we've called these people a lot of names, but if you've got a lower back pain patient, that you just can't seem to satisfy with your neuropathic agents, your antidepressants, your opioids, start thinking arachnoiditis, okay? Because these people can be miserable. Some of these people have a pain level far beyond what we used to see with metastatic bone cancer. It, it, the pain can be horrible. It's, it's, the, it's the king of pain, if you will. A uh, positional pain relief. Now, what do we mean by that? These patients who develop adhesive arachnoiditis, they also have spinal fluid flow obstruction. And you're going to see MRIs of that and how this works. What does that mean clinically? These people are always changing position. Anybody ever had a patient come into your clinic and want to lay on the floor? You got one. Okay? These patients that end up with that spinal fluid flow obstruction down in the sacral area They can't sit in one place very long, and they can't stand in one place very long. They're constantly changing. And when I first got into this thing, I thought these patients were trying to manipulate me because they'd come in my clinic and lay in the waiting room. I just thought they were drug seekers, (laughs) laying down on the job or or giving me bad publicity. I wasn't sure which. But anyway, they laid on the floor. So you get somebody that comes in your clinic and wants to lay on your exam table or on the floor, That's what you're looking at. You're looking at spinal fluid flow obstruction. It is the obstruction of the spinal fluid flow, I believe, that causes most of these patients, to either they can't sit for very long in one place, and they can't stand for very long in one place, and they'll go back and forth. Uh, uh, Other things that are going to be characteristic about these people, the history of the multiple invasive procedures. I want to be a little cautious about what I say here. I can't stand here and tell you that I see a lot of patients with unnecessary surgery or unnecessary epidurals. I don't see many of those cases. As a matter of fact, the patients I see have had excellent medical care, surgical care. They've been treated very well in American medicine. Yes, I've got a few patients now that have been brutally over-manipulated. I've got a patient with over 100 epidurals in five years. I've got people who've had, you know, 15 back surgeries in three years. And when you see those people who've had a lot of back surgery, a lot of epidurals, a lot of nerve blocks, I hate to say this, they're going to end up with this. As a matter of fact, when you've got to do a lumbar fusion, you've got to implant rods, and you've got to do something very invasive to that lumbar spine, I frankly don't know whether you come out of there without arachnoiditis. Let me repeat that. You're darn lucky to come out of there without it because you're going to have to manipulate the nerve roots during surgery so badly that friction between the nerve roots is the major cause of the problem. Remember, those nerve roots are in spinal fluid to be lubricated. And when you get a slip disc, you've got to do surgery, you've got trauma, you lose that non-friction lubrication, if you will, and that's when the nerve roots start rubbing against each other, or against the lining, and they get inflamed, develop adhesions, and you've got it. You've got it. Okay. Uh, Interestingly enough, uh, they get some interesting things. Burning feet, very common, very common episodic heat and swelling, uh, and these are common symptoms that you see, but the two biggies, constant pain, bladder dysfunction, those are the two biggies. If you can remember that, you can pretty well screen out people with lower back pain relative to who may have arachnoiditis. Arachnoiditis is clearly increasing in prevalence. Now, between 1950 and 2000, only 1,000 cases were reported. Since then, we're up a 400% in the last decade, but these are phony numbers. Now that we know how to diagnose it, again, we may be looking at a million or two million people in the country okay, that have this. It's a huge number, it's a huge number, and the diagnosis is there to be made. You've got ICTN numbers to use and diagnoses to be made, and the nice thing about it is this is no longer a hopeless disease. This is a d- disease that's quite treatable, and we're going to show you the regimens, of course, in a few minutes. The cauda equina, of course, is our primary focus. Cauda equina means horse's tail in Latin. Consists of about two dozen nerve roots hanging in the spinal canal, or in the fecal sac, as they call it. They can become inflamed, form adhesions, and be a source of severe pain and disability. But I want you to look at number four. Neuroinflammatory waste can produce an autoimmune disorder. I want to dwell on this for 45 seconds. Everybody's heard of the blood-brain barrier, right? Now, in your training and mine, We were taught that the blood-brain barrier is there to keep out offending agents, right? That's half the story. The blood-brain barrier there is to keep the nervous tissue out of the general circulation. It turns out that the good Lord really has given us a totally separate physiologic system in the brain and the spinal cord. That's why it is so heavily encased in bone as well as in a leather covering. That nervous tissue, if it gets into the general circulation, is antigenic. It is toxic. It is foreign to the serum. It's like getting a vaccine. What am I getting at? We now know that neuroinflammatory waste in that spinal fluid coming off those nerve roots or any other damage in the central nervous system goes up through some little openings in the meninges and floats into the cervical neck, the nose. Then it goes into the general circulation Why is this important to you? Sets up an autoimmune disorder. And that autoimmune disorder can mimic rheumatoid arthritis, systemic lupus, scleroderma, fibromyalgia. Bottom line is, you think you're here treating a lower back problem. Next thing you know, the patient's got carpal tunnel, Hashimoto's, skin rashes, a lupus rash, why? Those nerve roots are antigenic. Those little microscopic particles that get into the general circulation cause an autoimmune reaction, and they destroy joints and tissues, just like rheumatoid arthritis. So you, one of the reasons why we're very aggressive in treating this problem is if you do not, you're going to end up with a generalized autoimmune disorder in these patients. Okay, And it happens like night following day. Right. So that's why we see some very complex people that really start off with a lumbar cauda equina inflammatory process. Next thing you know, you've got a bad knee that's inflamed. So be aware of the fact that nerve tissue is antigenic to the rest of the circulation. That tissue is not meant to get outside that spinal column and the cranium. Okay? Now, just for again review, the covering of the spinal canal has three layers. Now, the pia of matter is almost a little film. It really doesn't, we're not even quite sure what it does. It must do something for nutrients or something, because it's certainly not a protective covering. It's very thin, but your arachnoid layer is quite tough, but it can become inflamed, and your dura, of course, is the outside layer. And as far as I know, it doesn't carry much in the way of inflammatory cells. It's the arachnoid layer that gets us into inflammation and causes the disability and the pathologic problems that we have. Okay, some of you saw this little slide earlier. But what's important is that your spinal cord ends at L1. So from about right back here, you don't have a spinal cord. You got a bunch of strings and threads hanging down in fluid. Alright? Now that's not been much meant much to medical practice till now, but now it means everything. Okay. And so you've got these two dozen nerve roots hanging down, and it goes all the way down to the coccyx. In fluid. Here's a frontal view. End of your spinal cord. that's, that's called the conus medullaris, if you want to remember that. And the cauda equina comes down, the, sits there inside the spinal canal. And here's a real live picture of, of this. And again, take a look at the nerve roots there. Here you've got one that's pretty good size. And here's one over here that's hardly bigger than a thread. So they're a little bit different sizes. But, they, but the important point I want you to know is that they hang down. They are freely suspended. And as we move, they move. If we go back, they go back. They float with us. Okay? And if you do anything to disturb the natural alignment of that spine, you're setting the patient up for inflammation. For example, patients with scoliosis are going to end up with arachnoiditis an awful lot of the time because they're bent. And so are those. That means you're forcing those nerve roots to touch each other and rub against each other and maybe even rub against the lining. Now, an axial view on the MRI looks like this. And I think some of you heard me talk about how the MRI with contrast is done to where the camera on the axial view is taking it up through the legs upward, taking pictures at different levels. And so here's your vertebra. For example, here's your back, spinal process, and there is the spinal canal. Your arachnoid lining is the lining, and your nerve roots are spread around. This is actually showing your nerve roots at about L5. And here you have the nerve roots are paired, one afferent, one efferent, and they are in this position at about L5. The other thing that might surprise you, these have been mapped. When you start looking at MRIs, you're going to want these little maps to look at it. Here's what the MRI is going to look like at L2 and L3. And what I want you to kind of get a grasp on is this. After you look at these things for a little bit, you start realizing these nerve roots have a size in diameter that you learn to recognize. And pretty soon you know when one is too big and edematous and inflamed. But what I want you to know is that here in this slide, the spinal fluid is brown, but it's, you'll notice that none of these nerve roots are touching the lining. They're floating free. They need, they're they always to be floating free. Once they attach to the lining, that's called adhesive arachnoiditis. That's a disastrous condition. L3 and L4, they start to spread out some. But again, you've got a normal size, you've got fluid, they are floating in fluid, and they're meant to be that way because the fluid is not only a lubricant, but that fluid also carries out the waste, and it also carries in nutrients. L4 and L5, L5, S1. And you're not, I don't want you to try to remember these things except to know that these maps exist. Here's a a cadaver, someone who's died, but it is normal to where the nerve roots are at L1 and L3. They're in the posterior position. And that's what they look like again. The diameter has a certain diameter that is standard or normal. Here you move down to about L3 and L4. L5, S1, and we'll take a look at some MRIs. Again, these are normal. L1 and L2, the nerve roots are there. They're in normal distribution, normal size, and they have fluid all the way around. Now, for those of you who weren't here earlier, the white fluid is dye. That has been dye that's been injected intravenously, has colored the spinal fluid, so you can actually get a picture. And it has been that kind of technology that has allowed the diagnosis to really be nailed down. If we could kind of hold the questions, and let me try to get on through it, because we will take them. Again, a normal L4S1, nerve roots again are suspended, fluid is all the way around the nerve roots, Here is somebody that's not so lucky. I showed this slide earlier, but it's a good one to learn from. 46-year-old male, post-lumbar fusion. Look at the nerve roots. They are clumped. They are glued together. And right here and right there, one of them is stuck to the lining, the arachnoid lining, so he qualifies as to have the diagnosis of adhesive arachnoiditis. Now, once you learn to look at some of these, you know this poor guy, has got a miserable life. You can sort of see pain. After a while, you look at these things and you realize when you see those kind of clumps, that's just pure pain. That's pure disability. That's a bad batter. That's a bad stomach. Uh, that's, a, that's a leg that doesn't move right. That's, that's burning neuropathy in the feet. That's somebody who's got headaches and blurred vision. So you've got tragedy when you see this. And that's why everybody who does pain work needs to learn how to read these things. And you may have to take a little more of a tutorial on it, but it's not that hard to learn to look at these things. In the project that we've been doing here in the last year, we've had over 300 MRIs sent to us from around the world. So we've got the best library that's ever been collected. And we've we've gotten these MRIs in from as far away as Mongolia, Russia, Australia, Africa, so we've taken these, we've made it, I've made it known that anybody who wanted me to look at their MRIs and interpret it for them, they could send them to us. So we've got quite a good library that we're anxious to share for people who want to learn how to read these things. At this time, look out, your radiologists haven't seen enough of these cases to even interpret this yet. But they're getting there. Okay, 39-year-old female with constant crippling back, leg, and foot pain. Now, here, this is the side view and what you're looking at is this, the white again is the spinal fluid that has dye in it. This dark color, this right here is the spinal cord, it cuts off here, and this is nerve roots hanging down. Now you happen to know this is an abnormal, because there's no nerve roots down in this level, something's happened to the nerve roots. But again, that's what you look at. But what I do want you to know, the spinal fluid flow looks pretty good in this. Okay, you're going to see some, extra, some MRIs in a minute where you can clearly see the spinal fluid flow obstruction. And this is the same uh, lady. Uh, here, again, clumped nerve roots. She's got a neurogenic bladder. These nerve roots are stuck to the lining, so she would qualify for either a chronic cauda equina syndrome or a TC arachnoiditis. You could give her either diagnosis or both. Now here is a patient that was a controversial patient. A controversial patient, why? The radiologist couldn't agree that that's arachnoiditis. It ends up in litigation and what have you. And again, it's kind of like the hand in front of your face. She's got clumped nerve roots here, here. That's probably stuck to the lining and and what have you. Uh, But the key is this. The lady had terrible pain. Bladder doesn't work, stomach doesn't work, she's half paralyzed, so clinically she has it. This MRI just kind of confirms it, although I can tell you that some of these MRIs are a little tough to interpret, and you can get honorable radiologists and physicians who don't agree, so you can have that situation also. Okay, the diagnosis of a neuroinflammatory disease of the lower spine. What I want you to know is that the diagnosis is like everything else in medicine. It's made on a history and physical, and laboratory findings and the MRIs are confirmatory. Okay, we get so used to trying to make it in reverse. But you're going to make the diagnosis with your history and physical, there's some of your history, your physical exam. The physical exam in all these people will be abnormal. Now, a lot of the physical signs that you see, you've been taught to be compatible with a slip disc or some other pathologic entity, but these people will have very weak legs. That's why they can't stand for a while. Straight leg raising, probably going to be gone on a lot of them. They can't wiggle their foot back and forth. But you're going to find some neurologic defects in the lower extremity, and they're not constant. Because depending on where those clumping is, and where the adhesions are will depend a little bit on exactly the physical findings of the lower extremity. For example, you may find no reflexes in some of these people, but find pretty good reflexes in others. Or maybe good reflexes on one leg, but not the other. One leg may be very weak, but not the other. But you will find physical findings. If you don't find physical findings, I question whether you've got arachnoiditis. Okay. So physical findings are very important and they're also very important because you're going to use your physical findings to monitor the patient when they come back to the clinic. Sometime if I'm in a hurry, I just have them stand up in front of me and I say, Nellie, wiggle your foot for me so I can see how their foots. raise your knee for me, Nellie. How you doing with that? Can you raise your arms up? So you can do a quick range of motion strength test real quick to monitor how these people are coming along. But remember, it's physical function. Physical function gets terribly impaired in these people, but you can use that to monitor the patient ongoing. Okay, laboratory tests. That's correct. Yeah, these are not specific to rhegnoiditis. Yeah, yeah, they're not specific. They're going to be any number of things, but you're going to find something. I wish I could find one physical sign, I could say that this is it, but I haven't been able to. (laughs) Uh, Laboratory tests, C-reactive protein goes up in about 40% of these cases, maybe 50%. Erythrocyte sedimentation rate goes up in some. And then if you have access to biloperoxidase, tumor necrosis factor, alpha-1 adatrypsin, that's great. Uh, These tests aren't too available yet, but nevertheless, they go up in neuroinflammation. What happens is that we get the patient late. When you read about inflammation, you're normally reading about the acute early inflammatory problems where your interleukins go up, your cytokines go up. We get the patients late, so we have to measure late-stage inflammatory markers. But they're there if you measure them. Okay. And then, of course, your MRI is a confirmatory procedure confirmatory procedure. Okay. Now let's get into treatment. Four legs. I have a four component protocol that I'm recommending. We have one to give out to everybody before you leave her if you haven't been given one. Now the four components in my opinion have to all be done. They don't have to be done at the same time, but they got to be done if you're really going to help these people. The missing link has been the inability or misunderstanding of how to treat neuroinflammation. So consequently, we've focused primarily on symptomatic pain relief. Now, pain management in this country does an excellent job of symptomatic pain relief. Yeah, you get the criticism over the high-dose opioids, but we've been getting people good relief, good symptomatic relief. We're not throwing any of that out the window. These other components, the other three, are being added to what we've been doing so we don't stop anything we add to it but in my opinion the missing link has been the inability to treat neuroinflammation and that's what I'm going to focus on here for a minute I call it the missing link treating neuroinflammation now this might surprise you we use different drugs but the model is the rheumatoid arthritic Model. We just don't have any biologics yet that affect the neuroinflammatory system, but we have lots of animal and in vitro studies showing that the two, these two corticoids, methylprednisolone and dexamethasone, sometimes prednisone, plus these compounds have been shown in studies to suppress the microglial cell and suppress neuroinflammation. And so what I've been doing the last couple of years is trying all of these agents. Now, I've got patients on everything on that slide, every one of them, okay? And so some of them have problems, side effects, but there is literature backup for the use of these compounds. Uh, We have some references attached to this slide presentation, and if you want a whole list of the whole bibliography, you can write and get it. But what I want you to know is we just didn't pull these off the shelf now. Nobody would have dreamt these up on your own. I mean, it was shocking to me to find out that old metformin suppresses the microbial cell. Shocked me to find out that only two anti-inflammatory agents tend to cross the blood-brain barrier, and that's endosin and catorolac. Uh, I can't, and so these things are have been come out of research. All I've been doing is trying to translate them or transform them into clinical practice. And so the basis of neuroinflammatory treatment that I use and is on my protocol through trial and error is the use of low-dose dexamethasone and Ketorolac injections. Now, let me tell you what my initial protocol is, and that is we have found out that you just don't give these corticoids, you've got to give them in the afternoon or, or the evening. If you give them in the morning, they're probably going to get sick. It is the, they drop off their cortisone after about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So we give the low-dose methylprednisolone or dexamethasone at a very low dose to start with, 3 o'clock in the afternoon on 3 to 5 days a week. We start cotorilac injections, not oral, but injections one time a week. And you can you give to Ketorolac up to about three times a week if you skip dosages. It's a toxic drug if you give it on consecutive days. Okay, and you have to measure, uh, you have to take a creatinine, uh, a creatinine or a BUN on these people probably every three months to make sure you're not getting any renal damage. These other compounds, we we'll use all of them, but at, at, for different purposes. If time permits, I'll come back to it, but I need to move on here. Uh, dietary supplements, interestingly enough, uh, carnitine and omega fatty acids actually have literature showing that they suppress the microglial cell. And some recent literature shows that curcumin and turmeric does. This is one that I see no literature on, but it's very popular among arachnoiditis patients to take. Okay? They use a lot of seropeptides. It's the new thing among the, the clan. Okay, pain relief, symptomatic therapy, Nothing new about this. We don't have anything new in pain management therapy in a decade. We've been given ketamine for a decade, low-dose naltrexone for a decade. We've been given, you know, methylphenidate and amphetamines for a decade. There's nothing new here, but you may have to get pretty aggressive for managing these pain patients. Okay, but what I want to get into here, in the time we have, is something about spinal fluid flow and the necessity to deal with that aspect, which is quite new, quite new. Now, why this concept of spinal cord exercising? You need to do spinal cord exercising for two purposes. One is to prevent adhesion formation If you can't keep that patient walking and active and stretching, adhesions form inside the spinal canal. And that's when paralysis will take place. I've got a whole lineup of patients who know they were gonna be paralyzed. Some of them actually came in and were almost ready to go to the wheelchair until they started walking a quarter mile a day or started exercising that leg. So walking is still number one exercise, okay? And I've got some others, but secondly, You've got to relieve the spinal fluid flow obstruction. Now, a couple of things about spinal fluid. Number one, there's some shocking statistics about it, scientifically, that kind of boggle one's mind. Number one, believe it or not, we change over our entire spinal about four times a day. Now, we don't change over our lymph and our blood except one time every four months. our spinal fluid gets changed over four times a day so the good Lord has some reason to do that now it's changed over and made in the villi of the ventricles in the brain and it's made and then it goes down the spinal cord now let me throw this at you there's no pump in there we have a pump that pumps around our blood directly and our lymph indirectly but we have no idea How the spinal cord pushes the spinal fluid back up okay it's got to come down the spinal column and then turn around and go back up because it's it it is changed over in the brain in the villi into the cervical lymph nodes i don't have a clue how the body does that as far as we know it's passive so the patient has to move and do things constantly to keep the spinal fluid moving upward Okay? It's got to do that. And we've got to teach people to do that. Never dawned on me we had to do that, but we don't have a pump in there. It's all passive. There's probably a lot of ideas or ways you do it, and my guess is we've had people on this planet doing this instinctively for thousands of years. They just didn't know what they were doing. But they were doing something pretty good. But you've got to make that thing flow. If the spinal fluid backs up, that's when toxic waste accumulates. That's when they can't function. They've got to lay on the floor. That's when they're going to get a headache, bird vision, because you're going to back up that fluid into the eyes, ears, and the brain. Now, when I say backing up fluid, now we're not talking about a gallon here now. We're talking about three drops. We're not talking about much fluid, just a few drops of spinal fluid that backs up into the ear or the nose or the eye causes pain and causes disability so we're not talking about much fluid here now just a little bit okay now here's some MRIs to demonstrate what we're talking about again these are from the side view now here here's the spinal cord coming down here and it cuts off right about here and the spinal roots are coming on down. And you'll notice there's something right there, something right there. But the big blockage right here. That's right down here at S1. So you don't see spinal fluid moving through this area like it's supposed to. So what that's gonna do, just back up a few drops. That's all it takes to have the patient not able to sit down or able to stand. Down here, uh, this is a different patient, I think. Again, here's a, here's a spinal cord, conus medullaris, drops into the nerve roots, and you don't see any nerve roots past here, but there's some kind of a blockage down here because the fluid's not nice and clear. So the dye, when you do order these MRIs, you want to do it with the dye so you can see if you've got a blockage. Okay. Now, in the cervical neck, that's how you make the diagnosis, is that you see that the fluid can't pass in the cervical neck. That's what you look for. Unfortunately, I don't have any pictures of it, and my time doesn't permit me to do that. But anyway, again, here's one. Uh, you've got obstruction down here, and it looks like some of it passes, and that's probably a Tarlov cyst. A cyst. But you've got a blockage right here, and you've got some blockages right in here. So all that takes is a little blockage to back up the fluid, and that becomes very symptomatic for the patient. Here, on the MRIs, we will use a term called the empty sac appearance, and here's what I'm getting at. Here, the spinal cord cuts off right about up here. The nerve roots are coming down here in the posterior part. gets down to here, but there's no nerve roots in here. So where'd they go? It turns out... When you see that appearance, the nerve roots have glued themselves around the sides. Okay? That person's in deep trouble. Okay? That person's got a long life of disability and misery. Because those nerve roots are not even visible in this sack. Okay, another one here. You don't have to be a whiz, kid to see the blockage. Okay? There you are. Hardly any of it gets down here past S1. So this person is not going to be able to sit. So that person is going to be carrying a pillow. Okay? No question about that. And here again is a classic empty sac. See it there? Blockage is here backing up the fluid. And it almost can't back it up at the top of that sac. But there is the sac. There's no nerve roots in it. and We call that the empty sac appearance, which is a malignant sign. That's not a good sign. Now, here is one of those patients with what we call the empty sac, looking at it by the axial view, and what you see is the nerve roots are hardly visible. They're stuck to the arachnoid lining. They're stuck. They're not floating free. They're stuck or they have adhesions to that lining. Now, what's amazing these days I've looked at a lot of MRIs read by prominent radiologists, they read this as normal, okay? Because it never dawned on them to look for this. So remember, radiologists read x-rays looking for surgical lesions, not physiological abnormalities or pathological spinal fluid flow problems. But this is what you've got. So what do you do about it? Well, I've been trying to design a set of exercises and measures And I think I get some results. Uh, I know I do, but I'll cover that. Oh, here's some more cases. See all the blockage down there? And this is clear up at L5. So this patient's going to have real trouble. Up here, same way, all the blockage. Okay, let me go into some of the things that I'm doing to try to help out spinal fluid flow obstruction, as well as some of the exercises to help the spinal cord out. Uh, first off, you'll notice that's me with a brace. These people have to be taught to use a brace right out front. They can't go flying on an airplane or going shopping or riding in a car without that brace on. That that spine is so fragile and all they got to do is step off a curb the wrong way and tear a little more nerve root. and makes it worse. And you know something? I have yet to have more than 1% of patients sent to me that were ever taught to use a brace. Okay, where do I get my braces? Big five sporting goods. They're cheap. (laughs) My medical supplier is too expensive. Down here, does anybody recognize what that is? It didn't come out very well, but it's a tub. (laughs) For some reason, Water therapy is great for these folks and I don't really know why. I don't know what water does, but water is very soothing for these people. They can walk better. They feel better. I do everything I can to get these people into water. Uh, Water must conduct some electricity relative to outflow, so I try to get them into a jacuzzi, a pool, a bathtub, whatever I can get them into uh at least a few times a week uh over here on this left hand side you'll uh, you'll see my good assistant here she she works cheap, so she didn't charge much for these photos but <laughs> uh bottom line here's here 's a simple exercise just laying on your back and pulling that knee backwards uh i can't think of a better exercise to keep the cauda equina stretched then laying on your back and grabbing your knee and pulling it back. You just don't want them to pull too hard to make it hurt, but you want them to pull it back and hold. Because you've got to stretch that cauda equina. You've got to stretch those adhesions. Uh, Again, simple things. When you start seeing these patients and ask them just to do their foot like this, they can't do it a lot of times. But after a little toil, You teach them to do it every day, starts working, starts working. Again, some of these are classic range of motion exercises. Now what's fascinating about this lumbar stuff is they must contract the whole spinal cord. Because these people cannot lift full body. You would think that a lesion down here would not impair your ability to raise your arms up full length, but it does. So they must be developing contractures of not only the lumbar spine, but something up up here. And so when you test them, you will be shocked to realize that a person with a cauda inflammation can't reach their arms out. And you teach them to do that too, reach up and stretch. These are classic range of motion exercises, but they're stretching. You want them to stretch that body out. Okay. You might have better ones yourself. Now, another thing I have everybody do is I try to get them to get a trampoline. Trampoline and a rocking chair have been thought to improve spinal fluid flow. Uh, astronauts, that's where I first heard about this, walked on a trampoline before they go into space. And it was thought that it improves spinal fluid flow and lymph flow. Does it? I don't know. I think it does. I don't have any proof, but I recommend it. And you'll notice over here, there's something funny looking here on the neck. This is a device that I do use that I want to explain to you real quickly. This is an infrared. Here's an old piece of copper. So I'm bigger on these things, but I want to show you this right here for a moment. Look on your right-hand side for a moment. This is something called ProVant. Now, that's a trade name, and I speak for them for full disclosure. don't want to kid you about it. But why do I do that? It's an electromagnetic radio wave. It penetrates into the spinal column. And it sends a radio energy wave into the spinal column. And we've actually got studies that show that it cuts down inflammation, improves flow. And where I've made excellent use of this is that I've taken emergency cases where people have developed paralysis right after an epidural for delivery or. God forbid have developed paralysis after a spinal tap And so I'll use it best there But I'll use it on anybody But anyway I do want you to know That we're looking at what instrumentation Can we get electromagnetic waves Into the spinal column This is the one instrument I know that does it Now a different instrument That's less expensive Is a scrub brush Okay so I get everybody a scrub I give them one Laser we don't know I think so the trouble with the laser is it is such a narrow spot. Yeah, you, can you can move it up and down. I think the laser should be used infrared if it's a, uh in other words these devices I'm seeing good uses of all of them. In fact, I have used I use the laser myself right with that. Yeah. Okay. Uh you might be shocked over here. I give everybody a big magnet. I buy a magnet from a uh Place that makes magnets here where my office is it's a big old heavy magnet I have them rub a magnet up and down that spinal cord two or three times a day Uh, how much good does it do I don't know but they feel better afterward and then the real ace of treatment the rocking chair now Janet Travell who was really the father of modern pain management First thing she did was she got John F. Kennedy as a patient who also had arachnoiditis. In fact, there's an x-ray, a famous x-ray of Pontiac in his spinal fluid. Had him get a rocking chair. And even when he was president of the United States, she made him rock in that chair two or three times a day right in the White House. I don't know why she did that, but my guess is it made the spinal fluid go. I only know one thing. Whenever they have a TV show and somebody's 115 years old and they interview them, And they say, gee, Mrs. Jones, how did you live to be 115? Regardless of what they say, you know, they're either in a rocking chair or a swing, so I'm recommending it. (laughs) 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 Uh, The close out, time doesn't permit me, but neurogenesis, uh, I want to say one thing about neurogenesis. This is possible. I've now got people that are on, have been on HCG six years. We think we see nerve growth. We don't have a lot of good MRI data, but we've got a few showing improvement in MRI. We've certainly seen reductions in inflammatory markers. Uh, and here is fundamentally my neurogenic protocol. I replace any hormones that are deficient, and then I use these three things. Now. Uh, If you don't know where to order, get oxytocin or human chorionic and I can sure tell you the suppliers I use. But I do want to close out with another comment. The French started using pentoxifilin initially for what's called epidural fibrosis. That's another neuroinflammatory condition usually done after lumbar fusion or seen after lumbar fusion. And pentoxifilin with vitamin E, as the French have thought it, Dissolve some of the adhesions. I have been using it and I think it may. I now also use it for people who have abdominal adhesions Okay, and I and you're supposed to take vitamin E with it. And so uh, Again, it's early Pentoxifilin has been shown to suppress the microglial cell, but apparently it may have another Purpose and that is the actual dissolution of some adhesions. This is not proven but clinically, patients some patients are doing very well with it. Okay? Again, a cheap old drug uh, has some side effects, but it's been pretty good. Summary, there's an awful lot of people out here that we think have this and are unknown. I, have, I had patients, some that I had had 10 years in practice in my clinic. I was just treating them for degenerative spine disease until I learned about this and I was able to get old MRIs and I found out they'd been in my practice 10 years, and I didn't know what they had. So I would ask you to do the same thing. Survey your own caseload as I did, and you might start picking out some of these people that need to be evaluated for arachnoiditis. Uh, secondly, these are progressive; can be progressive diseases, and neuroinflammation can be treated, and neurogenesis appears possible. I'd like to leave you with this thought, and then I'll take questions, and I will be around. Besides just treating this condition, I'd like for you to also think about another thing. What you're hearing here, I believe, for the first time, is some organized attempt to start trying to treat the underlying cause of severe non-cancer pain as opposed to just symptomatic treatment. Somebody asked me earlier today, do I use this protocol on things other than arachnoiditis? And the answer is yes, I'm progressively doing it. I made the protocol just for arachnoiditis, but all of a sudden I'm finding myself getting everybody on dexamethasone, ketorolac, and it's been nice to see. It's early. My use of opioids is way down, uh, certainly. Uh, patients are happier. But it is early, but I would only say that this is a first shot out of the box. Hopefully this protocol will be improved on many times over, and I'm sure it will be, but it is an attempt to start trying to treat the underlying condition as opposed to just treating them symptomatically. I'm going to stay around and take questions either from the group or individually here. Oh, one last thing. Hang on just a second. I forgot to mention something. If you'll give me a business card or a piece of paper with your name and email on it, I've started a little something called an arachnoiditis bulletin that I'll send out once or twice a month. It's free to get people brought up to date. All I need is a business card or a piece of paper with your email on it.